John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has begotten God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Lord, I ask for your help now in putting on display Jesus Christ from this word of the one who on earth knew him more intimately than any other man, John the Apostle. Help me to be faithful to what he wrote and grant in this moment, Lord, that the hearers would be spiritually prepared to understand and welcome what is true and embrace and treasure and believe these things about you and thus to know you and love you and follow you all their lives and into eternity. Guard us from the evil one who would distract and deceive, mislead, And may the Holy Spirit have sway in this room right now, I pray, through Christ. Amen. In the spring of 1974, when I was finishing my studies in Germany, my doctor father, Leonard Goppold, had died the preceding December. And to take one of his courses... They called Oskar Kuhlmann from the University of Basel 
to come and teach the gospel of John, from which the reading just came. And he was an old man already at the time, and he lived a long time and just died three years ago in his late 90s. And I remember one primary thing and some subordinate things about that course that I sat in on. And one of the things I remember is that in this 18-week semester, the first 13 weeks were spent on those 18 verses that were just read to you. (laughs) I say that for a couple of reasons. One, to let you know what a daunting challenge it is for me to devote one sermon to these 18 verses. And the other, to make you feel the riches of the Gospel of John. It is so deceptively simple. You put a new believer onto it, and he gets it. You put a person who's been a scholar and a believer for 70 years onto it, like Kuman, and he can't exhaust 18 verses of it in 13 weeks of two hours a week. This is a very profound book. Well, I've chosen it this morning mainly for two reasons. One, it has in it and is a magnificent Christmas text because of verse 14. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There's Christmas. If you're here as a... Uh, uh, an outsider to the faith of Christianity, you wonder, what's it all about anyway? That's what it's about. There was an eternal, everlasting, never-beginning being called here the Word. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Word, and at a point in history, the Word becomes flesh. That's Christmas. That's the first reason. The second reason I take up this text is because, as I said in the welcome last Sunday morning, we live in a new day in which the pluralism of religiosity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, all kinds of more recent religiosities, New Age sorts, other kinds of faith experience are calling for us to know our Jesus Christ for who he really is and not for whom he's made out to be by others. I said last week, and I'll say it again now, in fact, I just read another person, a a Muslim leader, say, in effect... In fact, these are almost his very words. We honor Jesus more than you Christians do because we do not believe God would allow him to suffer the ignominy of the death of a criminal on the cross, but took him to himself. So we honor Jesus more than you do. Now, you do not have to become an expert in Islam or Judaism or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or New Age movements, in order to know with depth and 
confidence what is true and where you stand. You need to know Jesus. Not what other people think about Jesus. You need to know Christ. Really know him for whom he is as he is revealed by those who lived and taught with him for three years, his apostles, and on whom he poured out his spirit to bring to their memory all things to record them for us in four gospels. You need to know this one we call Jesus so that when another Jesus is spoken about by other religions, whom they say they honor, you will know it isn't my Jesus. It isn't the biblical Jesus. And in this text, there are at least, I'm only going to pick, five magnificent things about Jesus, about the Word made flesh. Let's take that as our jumping off place. Verse 14, the Word was made or became flesh. Now let's ask, had an angel stopped me on the steps coming up here and said, deliver in one sentence to me what you expect to do in this pulpit. Then I'll let you go. I think the sentence I would have said once I had gotten up off the floor <laughs> and caught my breath was, I want them to embrace the Word made flesh for who He really is. Maybe if I had said it more fully, more clearly, I would have said, I want them to, to know and understand and savor and embrace and believe and stand on and live out and display the Christ of these verses. The real Christ, the biblical Christ. That's what I want. And I hope he would have said, do it. I'll help you. Well, that's my goal. I know in, in this room, the vast majority are believers. For that, I'm thankful. I know that some aren't. And I'm thankful you're here. Because my prayers go in two directions. Lord, grant believers who have received this great Christ to know him better and to cherish him more sweetly and to follow him more nearly, to be utterly devoted to him. And grant, O oh God, that those who are on the periphery, who are maybe one step in and one step out or distant or hostile or confused or alienated, grant that these five things that I'm about to articulate out of this text would come with compelling force. Not because I say them, but because they're so. They fit reality. And since you are part of reality, they fit you. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in this room to open hearts and minds to what is true. That's my longing. So let's do it. Let's go to number one. I have five things to say and then, and then I'll close by pointing out how there are two responses in this text and in this room. Number one. The name of the Word made flesh on earth is Jesus Christ. That's point number one. And I get it from verse 17, of course. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through 
Jesus Christ. This is the person who appeared in history when the word was made flesh in the womb of a virgin named Mary. An angel appears to Joseph, the reputed father, and he says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. English rendition of Jesus. Greek rendition of Yeshua. Joshua translated in the Old Testament. Savior, deliverer, I'll deliver you. So when you think Jesus, think deliverer, savior, rescuer from sin and hell and Satan and death and emptiness and meaninglessness and every form of corruption. Think savior. What about Christ? He's called there in verse 17, Jesus Christ. Christ is the English word for Greek Christos, which is the Greek translation of Messiah, Messias. Verse 41, Andrew finds his brother Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. And John, writing for Greeks, adds, which means Christ. Christ means anointed one. Christos, anointed one. In the Old Testament, the anointed one, the Messiah, the long hoped for king on whose shoulders the government would rest and whose kingdom would endure and last forever and ever. So when you think Christ, think Anointed king, messiah, ruler. When you say Jesus Christ, think savior, king, deliverer, messiah. That's who appeared on the scene in history when the word was made flesh in the womb of the virgin Mary. Point number two. The word made flesh existed as God and with God before he was born as a man on the earth. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There will always be sectarian groups laying claim to the word Christian who say, you can't have both those phrases. If he is with God, he's not God. And if he's God, he's not with God. That's simple. Speaking in the bondage to their little human conceptuality of divine things, 
refusing to own what the scripture makes plain. In the beginning was the word, and the word was two things, not one thing. With God, and the word was God. In the Godhead, the church is driven by this and dozens of other texts to say, in the Godhead, in God, there are Three persons, if we have the time to draw the Holy Spirit in here, in one deity, one essence. We're not polytheists, we're monotheists. One God, three persons, with God and God. The Word was God. And we Christians... Worship, worship Jesus. Without fear of idolatry, we bow before Jesus and say with Thomas, My Lord and my God. And do not fear that the Father is looking down with disapproval on that. That's point number two. Number three. Before the word became flesh, he was called the word. What does it mean in verse one? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Why does he call him the word? One way to go about answering that question is to contemplate other close possibilities that he might have called him and didn't, evidently, because word is better than those other possibilities. Let me try maybe three out on you. What if he had said, in the beginning was the deed, and the deed was with God, and the deed was God, or in the beginning was the act, and the act was with God, and the act was God, and that would not be a bad thing to say because God is an actor as well as a speaker. God is a doer as well as a talker. Oh, for the deeds of God to grip his people with wonder. But he didn't say in the beginning was the deed. He said in the beginning was the word. And this thought comes to my mind as an explanation. Deeds are intrinsically ambiguous. You arrive late here for service. What do I know? Are you lazy? Did you slide off the road? Did you stop as a good Samaritan and help somebody who did slide off the road? In which case, I praise God you were late. You ought to be late. What do I know by the deed of your late arrival? Nothing. Deeds are intrinsically ambiguous. And God does not mean to be ambiguous. you got to tell me why you were late. 
God has to tell us why He does things. There is something about the word, word, that is clearer, less ambiguous. God means to be a clear God. A clear communicating God. Let's try another one. In the beginning was the thought. And the thought was with God. And the thought was God. I think that would be true. What's wrong with that? Why is word an improvement on thought? And I think it's an improvement because the picture you have of a thought is a a mental idea reposing or resting inside your thinking head, not moving anywhere, not going out, creating the possibility of communication. Word has another set of connotations about it in which when you say word, you picture a thought going out so that there is communication. And I think this has relevance both before creation and after creation because as God spoke the Son eternally, never did He not speak the Son The Son created communication in the Godhead. Created is the wrong word, but we grope. There was communication because there was word, there was Son from eternity. And then with creation, the Son becomes the word spoken, the thought going out to interpret deed for us. And so word surpasses in appropriateness thought. And the third would be something like this. In the beginning was the feeling. And the feeling was with God and the feeling was God. It's the same problem with feeling as there was with deed. Feelings are very ambiguous. I see you crying. I have no idea what's going on. Nothing. Did somebody just leave you? Are you so happy you can hardly stand it because your son is home? I don't know what's going on. I see you happy. It's because you just got a million dollars and you're greedy? Or because you just gave a million dollars and you're a cheerful giver? I don't know. (laughs) Emotions need to be explained. Tell me why you're crying. Then I'll know how to cry with you. Happy with you or sad with you. I need you to talk to me. Talk to me. I think word is the right word. What am I to say, right? (laughs) Who cares what I think? It's there. And we're just trying to come to terms with what it is about Jesus, and surely what it is, is God expressed, God communicated. This is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God expressed. He wants to be a communicating God, a God spoken. And Jesus is that God. Fourth, 
All that is not God was created through the word. Verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Or all things came into being through him. And without him did not anything come into being that has come into being. The word, the son of God, Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate being was the one through whom all things that were created were created. That is very significant. You were made by Jesus. I think he said this right at the outset to underline a couple of things. One, to underline his deity. And two, to underline the stunning shock that he came to his own and his own received him not. Because he adds there, he came to his own who were made through him and they didn't receive him. How can you not know your potter if you're pot? The horror of our blindness and corruption. That's one thing he aims to underline. But the main thing he aims to underline is his, he's God. When you think God, don't you think first, he made everything. Everything depends on him. That's what God means. But there is something very powerful and very plain. If you will stop and think about these words in verse 3. All things were made or came into being through him. Now, had he stopped right there, there would be the slightest possibility, perhaps, that you would think, well, all things beside himself he made. God made him. That's Jehovah's Witness theology. Jesus Christ is an angel who was created by God. The next phrase will not allow it. If you wonder why he seems to word this next phrase as peculiarly as he does, think about it with me. All things were made through him. And now listen carefully. Without him was not anything made that was made. If there is a made thing in the universe, it was made through Jesus. And therefore, Jesus wasn't made. That's the point. So not only do you not have to worry too much when the Jehovah's Witness try out their New World Translation on you and say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. Which is what they'll read you out of their Bible if you give them the time. Not only do you say, that is not a faithful translation. I don't know my Greek, I'm sorry, but I have to lean on 2,000 years of faithful church history and a few people I know that study hard, and they say, that's not a grammatically faithful rendition. But then you can say, I see something else in this verse. Everything that was made, 
all that came into being, came into being through Jesus. So Jesus did not come into being. That's the point. And therefore, he's not Michael, a created angel. He's the maker of all things. So we've seen he is Jesus Christ, Savior, King. He is God with him and him and He is the Word, God in communication, and He is the Creator of all things. Finally, the Word made flesh has life in Himself, and that life becomes the light of men. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, if you just said, well, He's the Creator, of course. The creator, obviously, is the origin of life and everything that has life got it from the creator. Well, that would be true and obvious, probably too obvious to be re-said. And it doesn't help explain the word light and how the light becomes, how the life is the light. Look at it carefully. In him was life and the life was the light. This is John. This is the way John writes. You just read it. You say, mm, what's that mean? John, John, help me. Help me. And you have to, you have to meditate. And then you have to look up all the other places where life and light are used in the, in the gospel. And then after two, three, four hours, you get an idea. And suddenly you're a theologian. Meaning, a simply obedient meditator on the Bible. It's a very simple sentence. Life is light. It's got a subject. It's got a verb. It's got an object. And who in the world knows what it means? Until you meditate day and night upon the law of the Lord taking the full scope of his writing into account. I think here he is addressing the two fundamental needs of all human being. We are dead and we are blind. I think he's talking about spiritual life and spiritual light here. Physical life and physical light also come from Jesus. I don't think that's the point here. Because as I trace out life and light through this gospel and how they're related elsewhere... That's not what's on this man's heart. What's on this man's heart is that you and I, apart from Jesus, are dead spiritually. And you and I, apart from Jesus, are blind spiritually. And now we're told, in this Jesus, there is life. And this life is the light that I need for this eye. So I can both live and see. John 5, 21 The Son gives life to whom He will. Stands before the tomb of Lazarus, symbolically, as it were, for all of us. And He says, Lazarus, dead four days, come forth. And He comes forth with life. And they unbind Him. And He sees. You could change the image from resurrection to birth and get it again in chapter 3. Verse 3, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must have life to see. In order to have light flowing in, you have to have life in you. A dead person can't see. You must be born again to see the kingdom. So my first understanding of what it means when it says the life in him is, is the light in you, is this. When the life happens in you and you are spiritually awakened from the dead, you have the power to see. Now, here's the second meaning. See what? Well, ask yourself, what are you blind to right now? If you didn't have Christ and the Spirit in you, quickening and wakening and opening the eyes of your heart, what couldn't you see? Computer screens? Not a problem. TV? Not a problem. Sunrises? Sunsets? Snow? Not a problem. Faces of people? No problem. So what do you need Jesus for? I can see. If you could see, if you could see, you'd be on your face before Jesus. What we can't see without this life wakening us and giving us eyes is Jesus for who he really is. Infinitely valuable, surpassing in beauty and value and knowledge and wisdom and power and mercy and love and competence and all the things we think we admire in the world. He surpasses them one million fold. And how do we respond? Nothing. Little teeny weeny 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 devotion. We don't see him. If we saw him, in him is life. And that life is, now I'm going to say two things, not just one thing. One, the life in you that he imparts to you is the capacity to see. And now I'm going to say he is the light of the world that you see when you can see. His light in you enables you to see, and His light outside of you is what you need to see in order to embrace Him and love Him, follow Him, trust in Him, and be devoted to Him forever. In Him was life, the life I desperately need as a dead person in my trespasses and sins. And that life, when it arrives... In me, through faith, becomes my light, my capacity to see, and the splendor that I see. Now, those are my five pictures of Jesus. I'll give them to you one last time, and then we'll close. He is Jesus Christ, that is, Savior and anointed King. Secondly, He is God, the second person of the Trinity. He was with God and he was God. Thirdly, he is called the Word, God in communication, God expressing himself. 
Fourth, he is the creator of all things. All things were made through him and he was not made. And fifth, he is life and he is light. Our ability to see and the glory that we see. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Now, here's how we close. There are two responses to these five things in this text. One, I'm praying earnestly, even as I speak to you now, let it not be the response of this people. Let's read that one. Verse 10. Read it as a warning. Read it as something with fear and trembling you will not do. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. He's doing that right now in this room. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. So my plea, oh, on behalf of Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit, I plead with you in your heart right now, do not say in response to these five Portraits of Jesus, I do not welcome you. That is a terrifying thing to say to Jesus. And it will be the ruin of your own soul if you say it for the rest of your life. And you never know when saying it may seal it as your identity. Don't do it. Rather, do the other thing described next. Let's read the the positive response in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power or the authority to become children of God. Even to those, I mean, we're talking David type people here, treacherous people here, adulterous people here. Nobody in this room can say, that can't happen to me. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So I beseech you in the name of Jesus, take the door of your heart and open it and say to Jesus now, as my Savior and as my King and as my God and as my treasure and as my guide, I welcome you. I receive you. And right now, Satan is going to whisper in some of your ears. You know you don't mean that. And I want to ask you, are you going to let him win? He's going to say, you don't mean that. And you're going to wonder, do I mean this? 
And what I want to make sure you hear and understand is that saving faith often at the beginning and often subsequently in battlegrounds of unbelief is just the size of a mustard seed. So that all you can say back to Satan is, with whatever grain of sincerity is in me, I do mean this. And know that there is much warfare yet to be fought. Don't let him have the victory with a kind of all or nothing Oh, you couldn't stand up right now and articulate a good testimony. Or you couldn't show a changed life. Or you couldn't be as sincere as he really wants you to be. And so there is no... You see the shift there? That's a non sequitur. It's an illogical leap to let Satan drag you from your faith is the side of a mustard seed at best to... He'll never take that. Close with a picture. Christmas is God sending his son to stand in front of the caves of Tora Bora and seek Osama bin Laden's millions of them sitting in the pews here. And instead of taking a thermobomb and filling the tunnels with flame, he cries out, I have died for sinners. If you will come out, I will be your light. I will be your righteousness. My death will count as your death. And you, Osama, will have eternal life through me. Just receive me as your substitute. Receive me as your Savior. Receive me as your King. Receive me as your God. Your life. Your light. Let's pray. Father, I beg of you that no Osama will leave without you. I pray that the embattled hearts in this room right now would be fought for not only by Satan, but by the mighty Spirit of God. And that you would get victory by breathing upon the smoldering wick until the flame becomes a forest fire of love if it takes ten years. Oh, God, do it. Just stand with me. Now may the God of hope, who brought again from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, the Lord, may he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. And may he grant you now a sweet and blessed and merry Christmas and fill you with joy in believing in the new year. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.